One thing I, I'm trying to tell myself in, in order to stay hopeful is that you know, heartbreak is the difference between what you thought the world was and what the world actually turned out to be. I mean, what an incredible moment to say, okay, we don't know. I'm going to adjust my view uh, because it was too small. I, I misunderstood America. I misunderstood the country. It's a tremendous literary uh, mission to say, can we, can we reimagine our country? It's going to take some legwork, you know, and it's going to take some curiosity. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we will be hearing from short story master and debut novelist, George Saunders. And we'll also be hearing from U.S. Poet Laureate, Juan Felipe Herrera at Poets and Writers Live. And we'll be hearing a few poems by Patricia Smith from her new book, Incendiary Art. And so much more. So stick around. March-April issue. It is. More importantly, it's the Writers' Retreats issue. It is. We are talking all things Writers' Retreats. Mm-hmm. Conferences. Residencies. Retreats. Colonies. Um, getaways. <laughs> it's just a little space. A little space. A little, a little space for yourself. Yeah. Carving out some time and some space. And some, some, some peace and some quiet. Just some time to concentrate on your writing could be a cabin in the woods it could be a motel six it could be i don't want it to be a motel six but it could be i mean if that's what it takes that's what you're gonna do could be an airbnb it could be a condo by the sea (laughs) (laughs) i don't think it's gonna be a condo by the sea but i mean it might be you never know you never know know. whatever it is you know you follow your bliss yeah it could be the malay colony it could be ragdale it could be you cross it could be McDowell. It could be Dorland Mountain Colony. It could be the Wellstone Center and the Redwoods. Or it could just be something you do on your own. DIY. You know what? We've got it all in this issue. <laughs> we do have uh, a really good piece that offers some advice, mm-hmm. some questions to ask yourself before you apply to one of these uh, <laughs> actual retreats, <laughs> not the DIY ones. Yep. And then we also um, talked to several writers about how to do it yourself. So people who have um, created their own writer's residencies, either at home or away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was really interesting Mm -hmm. and helpful. Mm -hmm. But we're also talking about going abroad. Uh, We have a piece by Jennifer DeLeon about conferences for uh, people from historically marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in there. There is. We also have essays by Mark Wunderlich, mm-hmm. by Kevin Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, who has a new novel out, Perfect Little World. Uh, and he writes about the necessity of failure. <laughs> Which we all know so much about. That's true, because it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to happen. And he talks about you know his development as a writer and you know sort of coming to terms with the fact that you know writing is involves 
failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you become a better writer. Right. And uh, rather than try to escape that fact uh, to sort of embrace it, embrace it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have another installment of reviewers and critics by the wonderful Michael Takens. He spoke with Laura Miller, uh, who was a co-founder of Salon and is now with Slate. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have our cover story, an interview with George Saunders. Yes, the great George Saunders. He is really great. Mm-hmm. Of course, everyone knows him as the author of amazing short stories. He's got a number of collections. His most recent one is 10th of December, which was published a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Won the story prize. It did. Made a big splash. It was a cover story of the New York Times Magazine, um, really heralded as one of the best you know, books of 2013. Deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Well, this year he has his first novel, mm-hmm. Lincoln and the Bardo, which is a really crazy book. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes place in like 1862 in a graveyard where President Abraham Lincoln uh, is grieving the death of his son. And it is this amazing collection of voices, of ghosts in this graveyard, including. Willie Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And the bardo is sort of a name in the Tibetan tradition for this liminal space that the young Lincoln finds himself in. And uh, he's, it's it's really hard to to do the narrative justice. Um, You really should just read it. Um, It's it's pretty amazing. And I hear that the audiobook is also pretty crazy. Uh, It's got 166 voices. Which are all voices of the ghosts, right, that inhabit this place. But it's all different people doing the the voices. Like celebrities. Celebrities and and George Saunders himself and George Saunders' parents even uh, are part of it. So you should should check that out as well. Um, Love George Saunders. I first met him in the year 2000 uh, when I was just a, just a young editorial assistant here at Poets and Writers. And my first sort of feature assignment was to take the train up to Syracuse, where he was teaching, um, still is. Uh, but I, I interviewed him about his second story collection, Pastoralia. And um, he was so generous with his time. Um, I spent all weekend there and just really kind of felt a connection to, to him and his work. Um, so I was really happy um, that he agreed to another interview uh, this past December. Um, he was in New York, and we spent several hours talking about his debut novel and the flexibility of form and emotional realism and humor as a form of honesty. And we're going to listen to a, a clip of that right now. You know, it's funny. In, in talking about writing, I always I think people tend to make binaries. I don't know why, but a student will come in and say, I don't know if I want to be funny or serious. You know, or I, or sometimes they'll attribute, they'll link it to people. I'm, I either want to be, you know, Kerouac or Flannery O'Connor. So I don't know why the, these writing problems present as binaries, but they see, it seems to be neurological. And then, so, of course, one of the things you can do is you can destabilize the binary. And, you know, I, if you like O'Connor and Kerouac, put them on one side of the binary and who is, who's on the other side, you know. So in this thing, I it is sort of real. It's It's kind of realism but when i think about writing a truly realistic book i i don't have any interest in it so i i would say it's emotional realism and the goal has always been that that's actually what it is uh that's the first time i realized it's just to make is to have the fiction somehow simpatico with my actual emotional life or let's say with our actual emotional Mm -hmm. life uh 
now I think that was always the goal. I, I was Civil War and uh, that's what I was trying to do. I was in a pretty rough patch, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea would be to say, okay, I'm going to try to remember every emotional state I've ever been in and then assume that there are a bunch I haven't been in and that all the ones I've ever experienced are still going on. It's not like being a depressed 18-year-old went away because I got I turned 19, you know. <laughs> uh, so then try to try experimentally to imagine all those coexisting, develop a style that would allow you to to talk about that right uh, so it's not really I don't really care much about realism except in that sense what's what do what does the human mind actually produce for us what experiences and everything uh, you know prejudices and uh, impulses and desires how do those desires actually play out in the real world to get to the point where you could actually accommodate that would be the goal uh, so the, and that that makes sense for my for my work because this piece isn't actually there's only one or one or three living people in the book uh, so I don't know if we could really call it realism, but I think it's it, it certainly felt like I was more, uh, I had more room to be emotionally realistic, I felt like. Right. In other words, to be able to write about grief, not glancingly, but directly. You know, there's some, there's some of that in the early books, but it's always just a quick hit and move on. Uh, almost like a marker of grief. To be able to turn directly to it for 300 pages feels to me like a step in the direction of emotional uh, capaciousness, let's say you you know. So the the goal would be when I'm 300 years old and I'm finishing my last book. The the anybody who walked in, I'd go, oh yeah, I get that. You know, I love you. You know, I understand you. Well, let's let's have a book about you. You know. Yeah, yeah. Whereas even now, there there are some areas of human experience where I just like, yeah, I don't know enough. I don't know enough, or maybe I don't have enough um, generosity of spirit. So as I mentioned, George Saunders and I talked about a lot of things, uh, including politics, which is sort of inevitable these days. Uh, but last summer, uh, he, had, he wrote a long essay for The New Yorker uh, describing the Trump rallies that he had been attending. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the time, the polls were showing that it was unlikely that Trump was going to win. Uh, so it was really interesting now, looking back and talking about sort of how writers can confront this kind of new reality um, and actually how he can find a lot of hope in the current situation just in terms of the importance of writing. One thing I, I'm trying to tell myself in, in order to stay hopeful is that the heartbreak, you know, heartbreak is the difference between what you thought the world was and what the world actually turned out to be. So you thought this person loved you, they didn't. Oh, that, you know, well, actually that's on you. You know, right. in a sense. So, so those of us who are feeling crestfallen or heartbroken at this time, I, I'm trying to say to myself, it's not. That's your problem. You were out there in the rallies. Why didn't you know? You know. Right. Uh, so they in the literary. It's to say I'm going to adjust my view uh, because it was too small. I, I misunderstood America. I misunderstood the country. That's okay. I, it's it's you're allowed to misunderstand. Also, America is allowed to be as fucked up as it wants to be. Uh, I just can't be, my perceptions just can't be out of sync with that. I've got to, that's the writerly thing is to say, okay, right. You're, all right, that's one thing. The other thing I think is that, you know, we talk about specificity. Well, a fifth of the country voted for Trump. That's a pretty small number. To elect someone else would take a sliver of about 15% or not what percent, I can say 15% of the, you know, of the population would have to flip over into an anti-Trump stance. That's really easy. 
so so I'm not quite I'm not hopeless. It's still depressing, mostly because it makes me sad to think of all the people that I met on this trip. Uh, I've done in Phoenix, you know, and so many Mexican Americans and also Mexican immigrants who were so humiliated by by the, you know they work so hard and now the country is sort of turning them into enemies and that's heartbreaking that that's disgusting actually and it makes me sad and it also you know the other thing it does is it, is it backlights the, our whole history a little differently I think this you know like you talk to any African American like yeah and you say yo America's racist <laughs> like yeah that's not news that's not news so I think part of, part of the sad uh, sadness but also maybe the invigorating thing for me as an older person is to go you know what. I maybe never saw this country correctly, uh, and as you get older, you you tend to maybe a little bit of an Aaron Copeland vibe gets in your head, like oh, this lovely country that's been so good to me. You know, it's a time to maybe recons, you know, for me to reconsider, or for all, everyone to reconsider and say, yeah, we, this is not new. You know, this this uh, uh, kind of oppressive rhetoric and this kind of knee-jerk reactionary right. demagogue thing that's actually not new at all it's just we've been fighting it a long time i think that heartbreak comes from the fact that many of us felt that that was in its death throes you know right. and that this next administration would would be the end of it or at least a good a good movement towards the end of it and now we have to but you know again i to turn it back to writers i mean what an incredible moment to say okay we don't know we don't know and let's say just generalize we don't know the midwest well, that's a good project, you know, because the, 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 it's full of human beings and therefore full of literature. And I think, uh, you know, I remember coming the other direction. I, I was in Amarillo before I came to Syrac the Syracuse program, and I'd been working in a slaughterhouse, and we'd been having a lot of drama in our circle of friends and family, you know, deaths and drugs and all kinds of, you know, dark stuff. And I came out here very hopeful that that would give me a kind of a badge of authenticity, kind of like when Kerouac met Neil Cassidy. And I came out and I, I found um, that there was a lot of the, the people I met in the artistic community hadn't had much experience there. And so therefore, it didn't hold much interest. It was kind of just a, sometimes just a one-line joke, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, Amarillo, yeah, I, I drove through there, a bunch of currency exchanges. And I remember being, I mean, it was maybe one of the, most heartbreaking moments of my life to see that I wasn't going to get in there with that. There, there was no, there was no understanding that there was an entire human community there that I loved and that had, right. you know, that they were suffering. So now I, I turn around and oh yeah, actually that you know that um, it's a tremendous literary uh, mission to say can we can we reimagine our country? It's going to take some legwork, you know, and it's going to take some curiosity, which is in short supply these days in both directions. One of the authors featured in page one this issue is Patricia Smith, whose new book, Incendiary Art, is out this month from Triquarterly Books. She is the author of six previous poetry collections, including Blood Dazzler, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Should Have Been Jimmy Savannah, which won the Lenore Marshall Prize from the Academy of American Poets. She's also won four National Poetry Slam individual championships, which is more than any other performer. So her new book is not just a great collection of poems, but it's also incredibly timely and relevant right now. In it, she weaves current events and historical traumas to explore the legacy and prevalence of racial violence in present-day America. 
She often writes from the perspective of a grieving mother, and the poems confront American racism and call for awareness and resistance. So here is Patricia Smith reading from her new book, Incendiary Art. Incendiary Art, The Body. I've nightmared your writhe, glum fists punching their way out of your own body. The blinds stumble through the buckled vein of your throat as your nerve ending sputtered and blew. I've dipped my finger into a vaporous pool of your skin. The heat blessed your whole new self with horizon, square-jawed boy. With such potent intent, you blared illicit and just enough saint. Now, with so many northern days between us, you are much easier to God. But they are looking for you. They are wildly sloshing fuel across the landscape, and they are screeching your name. Today, one said, I I sure would like to burn a black man alive. So, yeah. You left us here with undulating acres of fools and that particular stank leg of gospel. You left us all this snuff, hawk, and proud little bowleg. You left their brains stunned by dairy and fat meat. You left us not much path, even after your body was that brief, beauteous torch. They seem to remember you fondly. And there are unstruck matches everywhere. Another author featured in page one this issue is Elena Passarello, whose second book of essays, Animals Strike Curious Poses, is out this month from Saraband Books. If you haven't read Elena Passarello, I would highly recommend it. Her first book, Let Me Clear My Throat, won the Independent Publishing Awards Gold Medal in 2013, and she received the Whiting Award in Nonfiction in 2015. This new collection is composed of 16 essays, each about a legendary animal in history, a bestiary that includes a 39,000-year-old woolly mammoth recently pulled from permafrost, Mr. Ed the Talking TV Horse, and the first spider launched into space, among others. So we asked Elena to read a little bit from the new book, and here she is with an excerpt from Animals Strike Curious Poses. Mike the Headless Chicken. Mike quickly figured out he could no longer crow. The few times he attempted to, hunkering into a center stage chicken squat and flexing his wings, he only managed a low rumble in his belly. It felt like being buried under a mound of mud, and it sounded like a kitchen sink with drain trouble. The gurgle and choke of it made Ole run for the eyedropper to squeeze Mike's clogged neck hole clear. It was a shame, thought Ole and Clara. They could have upped the admission at least a dime for crowing. I mean, look how the crowds clamored when Mike gave him the littlest wing flap. But charging more than a quarter for a bird that mostly just sat there just wasn't Christian, head or no head. Plus, the show already ran on sin. That head in the mason jar next to Mike was bogus. Back home in Fruta, Colorado, Clara's tabby cat had run away with Mike's God-given head, so Ole had pickled a decoy to take with them on the road. The news hounds came out to Fruta with their notepads, as did the zoological types with their magnifying lenses. They ate up Clara's gravy pie and gawked at Mike's spared brainstem and filed their stories from the field. Beheaded chicken calmly lives on and headless chicken alive and gaining weight. 
After the mentions in Life and the Guinness Book and the all-expensive-paid trip to the lab in Salt Lake, around the time tongues were wagging about Oli's new-bought hay baler and his fresh-off-the-lot Chevy pickup, another rumor must have brewed that fruit of water helped chicken blood clot. Because after that, you couldn't swing an axe without hitting some fruitin' who'd pinned down his own Wyandot for squinting himself as cockeyed as they imagined Oli to be. They'd miss the opening stroke on purpose to heat the blade, then they'd slice through the hackle feathers at a diagonal, sparing the base of the neck where most of the chicken brain hunkers low in a corner. Then the family would watch as the rooster's head rolled. The birds usually staggered off the blocks and stepped one, two, three, before toppling into the dirt. A few stayed alive for the afternoon or past sundown or maybe even into the next day. The whole farm white-knuckled and unblinking until the birds bled out or bashed into the stovepipe or fell off the porch or something. Mike could have told him, staying alive without a head is tricky. The old men at Fruita's Monument Cafe went on record that they couldn't care less. Outside the monument, though, the little girls with jump ropes demanded answers. Mike, Mike, where is your head? Even without it, you aren't dead. One article answered the girls, saying Mike wasn't dead because his will to live was almost human. But where in a headless chicken does this almost-human willpower lie? Nobody thought to ask that, and Mike obviously wasn't talking. It can't live in his cocksuredness, since crowing was off-limits and his gone head scared the hens away. Could the will be vascular, then? A, a coagulative will? The simple will of platelets thrombin and myelin to keep godlessly plugging and sheathing? Or could Mike have the same will as those brachiosaur bones hanging tough in the fruit of shale, waiting for their second acts as hair combs, figurines, curios you have to be careful not to break while dusting the mantle. He could have willed himself to fight the sure thing that is human folly, a noble course for any animal in the kingdom. Perhaps he already knew that sharp night on the block that Clara's mother was visiting and making Oli's axe hand anxious. He couldn't help but reckon that at some point Oli would let that head-thieving cat out of his sights. He probably bet his bottom chicken dollar that one of these evenings, after the show in one of these dank motor inns, he'd choke up, only to learn that Ole had left his crucial eyedropper at the last tour stop, 200 miles in the dust. What if Mike stayed alive, his ghost head shaking in disgust just to see what those two would cock up next? But perhaps it's best for all involved to think that Mike's will was something else altogether. Some living things harbor another nervous system, one that pushes them past simply crowing, past just chasing hens, and even past the natural order. What's the harm, really, in saying that Mike stayed alive for the promise of a tiny tent twisting with reverb, or for cheers so loud he could feel them in the bumps of his skin, for the good burn of hot light sizzling with moth wings, Clara's star-struck touch on his back, or the soft fuzz of a hotel blanket in place of chicken wire and an apple box, for fan mail simply addressed to the headless chicken in Colorado that the post office knew to deliver to Mike's farm. Let's tell ourselves this was what pushed him forward. Eighteen months past one final lap around the yard in a headless roast. Let's just say that same will to remain a rooster for 500 unseen sunups is the will of Ziegfeld, of flashbulbs, of borscht belts, of gotta dance, of take my hen, please, but I'm bump, and doc, my head hurts when I do this. Well, then you better not do that, but I'm bump, and mama always said don't count your chickens before they're axed, but I'm bump, and rooster, I barely know her, but I'm bump. Maybe Mike always knew that. In this world, baby, you're going to need a gimmick if you truly want to get ahead.
So we were in San Francisco last month. We were. For the 8th Poets and Writers Live. That's right. The first two-day Poets and Writers Live. Well, that was more like two days and a night. The opening reception was at City Lights Bookstore, which was really great. I got to see uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's writing desk. Mm-hmm. That's pretty inspiring. It really was. And the program itself was pretty fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. We had a number of terrific writers in attendance, including Kay Ryan, Jane Hirschfield, Jonathan Franzen. Ben Percy. Susan Orlean. Solmaz Sharif. And kicking it all off was U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera. Mm-hmm. And you, you really couldn't ask for a, a better opening act. No, he is fantastic. He is. He is, of course, a fantastic poet, but he's also um, a really nice guy mm-hmm. and had a, a lot of important and relevant things to say. That's right. And we're going to listen to a little clip of that. Let's do it. Uh, we have to respond. Violence is not necessarily someone with a gun pointed at us. It's the use of symbols that do not represent us in our realities. It's the use of terms. It's the use of how our histories and histories have been reframed. That's the first thing, symbolic violence, a conqueror does. Books are burned. Books are banned. Authors are killed. Artists are shackled. People with expressive talents are put in prison. So that is why your poetry is most important. And that is why your voice is most important, uh, because we want symbolic liberation. We want micro-liberations, too. We want to see our poems as moments and instances of liberation. Another uh, insight that I had is a question of suffering and joy. Because sometimes I look at my poems, I go, God, jeez, I don't think I want to read this. It's like big downer stuff, you know? (laughs) I read the poem, and everybody's in the audience going, oh, God. How do I do this? How do I do this? Because you know, so much is going on, as you know. And we wanna we write about it. You're writing about it. And whatever way you're writing about it, I know you're thinking about things. I know you're thinking about violence. I know you're thinking of police brutality. I know you're thinking about the political issues. And I know you're thinking about more, more than anything else what you are going through. I know you're doing that. And I know you're doing your best to express everything you can in any way you can. So I thought, how can I write about the suffering and how can I keep the joy in the same poem? Remember what happened in Dallas? The shootings in Dallas? And remember Philando Castile? And remember Alton Sterling? And the Dallas police officers who were shot? And remember everything else in the last, what, four years? Sandy Hook, Boston, Orlando, and around the world, and here. Where's the joy? How can we provide joy in telling that story? This is called At the Crossroads, a sudden American poem with a dedication. Rest in peace, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Dallas police officers, Lorne Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael J. Smith, 
Brent Thompson, and Patrick Samarripa, and all their families, and all those injured, and to all those injured. Let us celebrate the lives of all as we reflect and pray and meditate on their brutal deaths. Let us celebrate those who marched that night who spoke of peace and chanted Black Lives Matter. Let us celebrate the officers dressed in blues, ready to protect. Let us know the departed as we did not know them before. Their faces, bodies, names, what they loved, their words, the stories they often spoke before we return to the usual business of our days. Let us know their lives. Intimately, let us take this moment and impossible as it may sound, let us find the beauty in their lives in the midst of their sudden and never imagined vanishing. Let us consider the Dallas shooter. What made him? What happened in Afghanistan? What flames burned inside? Who was that man in Baton Rouge with a red shirt selling CDs in the parking lot? Who was that man in Minnesota toppled on the car with a perforated arm and a continent-shaped flood of blood on his white tee? Who was that man prone and gone by the night pillar of El Centro College in Dallas? This could be the first step in the new evaluation of our society. This could be the first step of all of our lives. That's it for this episode. But we'll be back in April when we'll be talking about the May-June writing contest issue. We'll also have a report from our nation's capital. We were recently at the annual AWP conference, talking to writers about how they're responding to the current political climate. That's right. We were on the book fair floor, and we asked writers what they're reading, what they're writing, and how they're resisting. So we'll have that and so much more on the next episode. Of Ampersand the Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Broke for Free, Jean Dark, La Flor del Otro, and Black Ant. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including extended interviews with George Saunders and Laura Miller, and more readings from Patricia Smith and Elena Passarello at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Ampersand.